Well, all of the scripture readings tonight have obviously been from Matthew's gospel, but I'd like to focus the homily on uh, Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 39. Right after Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the you know, psalm of dereliction. We read, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ, the Messiah? Well, save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are justly punished, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, to, then he said Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus died horribly. He died in shame. He died forsaken, derided, outcast, unable to lift a finger to help himself. He was pinned to an instrument of torture, completely helpless, at the mercy of sadistic torturers and mocking passers-by. And yet, here's what Luke wants us to see, that Jesus is reigning from a cross as a king. Now, that much is clear. He is a king who is crucified between two thieves. So writes Fleming Rutledge, whom I'm quoting from liberally this evening. Two thieves. A thief. You know, Matthew's the only gospel writer who uses that word, and um, it is misleading. We picture Jean Valjean stealing a loaf, loaf of bread to stave off hunger. But the Romans didn't waste their time crucifying small-time thieves. Crucifixion was the supreme penalty. It was reserved for only the worst kind of criminal. Your triple homicide murderer, or more commonly, someone who was guilty of the crime of sedition against the state. These were full-time, professional, ruthless, cold-blooded criminals who were considered a serious threat to the Roman rule of order. And even one of them actually admits that he was properly convicted by the authorities for crimes that he had committed. Not one, not two, not, but three men were penned up on crosses like insects. Crucifixion was a method for displaying in the cruelest way possible the power of the empire not only to just kill you, but to utterly and entirely dehumanize you through public prolonged torture. The message was that this too will happen to you if you dare to raise your hand against the emperor, against the state. They thought of crucifixion actually as a deterrent. Uh, uh, my, what a deterrent. 
it's almost impossible for us to imagine really just the extent of the dehumanization, how they were deliberately dehumanized to the point of being unrecognizable. Such was the extreme shame that the Son of God bore on the cross. Even one of the thieves joins in on the mockery. I mean, to think you're being crucified yourself, and yet you have time to mock the bloodiest of the three there, because it was only Jesus who had undergone the the trial, the beating, the scourging, the flogging. I mean, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, you know that Jesus was... He was literally a a bloody pulp hanging there. And yet one of them still mocks. If you are the Messiah, save yourself. But the other thief objects. This man has nothing wrong. And here's what I think is the key line in Luke's gospel. Are you ready for it? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is such an incredible sentence. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What made him think that Jesus had a kingdom? I asked my children that question earlier this week. And one of them pointed out, Dad, maybe he was able to read the inscription above Jesus' head that Pilate had put there. Here here is the king of the Jews. Uh, Maybe. But I think that somehow this so-called thief, somehow he was given some kind of incredible insight by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is he or is he not the Lord of a kingdom? Now, however the thief glimpsed that truth, he then does the most important thing, the most essential thing. He places himself into the care of Jesus With those simple words, remember me. Don't you find it astounding that he places himself into the care of a man who has no power even to move his own pinion hands? You know, he gave himself up and over to another helpless victim of the great Roman Empire, a degraded, naked, bloodied, fouled, cast away and soon to be a corpse. It is to that one that he says, remember me. And those words, if you can remember, if you consider that they are spoken by a man, you and I would be extremely frightened if we were to meet on the road. I mean, a a bad, evil, wicked man. He says, Lord, remember me. And I want you to make those your words. Make those your words. Will you remember me? And Jesus will. He says, today, truly I say to you, today you will be with me, with me in paradise. You know, in Islam, if you die a martyr's death, you're promised to go to paradise where you get to enjoy 72 virgins. You know, paradise is a harem. In Mormonism, when you die, you inherit your own planet. And if your earthly marriage has been properly sealed in a Mormon temple, then you and your wife get to repopulate some other planet together. Paradise is this godlike 
procreation. But in Christianity, Jesus says, you get paradise with me. (laughs) To be with me is to be in paradise. The great Charles Spurgeon once preached a truly fantastic sermon on this passage, far better than the one you're listening to now. He entitled it, Christ's Greatest Trophy. You know, he spoke of the thief on the cross being the first and arguably the greatest trophy of of Jesus in his trophy case. And I think, what an image. He says that, this is Spurgeon, if there was ever a soul hovering over the brink of hell, it was the soul of this thief. And if there was ever a case that seemed completely and hopelessly lost, it was the case of this thief. And if there was ever a man whom the devil thought that he was surely his own, it was this thief. This thief was a man who had never been baptized, who would never belong to a church, who would never receive the Lord's Supper, who never would do anything for Jesus, who who would never give any money, who would never do a thing who Jesus probably even knows. Part of the reason is he's speaking out of his own sense of fear. And what a reminder of grace that is to us. The grace of God in salvation. Salvation does not depend on what we can do for God. It is all of what Christ has done for us. Christ forgave a wicked, bad, hombre kind of man, knowing full well that he would never read the Bible, he would never make amends for those whom he had wronged, a man whose faith was only one hour old, a man who asked Jesus only once to remember him, and that one time was enough, (laughs) once was enough. Spurgeon goes on, talking about the disciples. The disciples had seen mighty signs and miracles of Jesus. They had seen the dead raised with a word. They had seen lepers healed with a touch, the blind receiving sight, the dumb made to speak, the lame made to walk. They had seen thousands of people fed with a few loaves and fishes. They had seen their master walking on the water as on dry land. They had all of, them heard, all of them heard him speak as no man had ever spoke and hold out promises of good things yet to come. Some of them had even had a foretaste of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Doubtless, their faith was a gift of God, but still, their faith had a whole lot to help it. And this dying thief saw none of those things that I've mentioned. He only saw our Lord in agony And in weakness, in suffering, and in pain, he saw him undergoing a dishonorable punishment, deserted, mocked, despised, blasphemed. He saw him rejected by all the great and wise and noble of his own people, his strength dried up like a potsherd, his life drawing near to a grave. This thief saw no scepter, no royal crown, no outward dominion, no glory, no majesty, no power, no signs of might, and yet the dying thief saw a king with a kingdom and with room enough for him. (laughs) Amen. How about you? 
How about you? As the afternoon drew on that Good Friday, John's gospel tells us that the religious authorities went to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and asked that the legs of the three men on the crosses would be broken so that they would die faster. They didn't want there to be any bodies hanging up on crosses, which were a sign of God's curse. Uh, On the Jewish Sabbath, they didn't want there to be any sign of what they had done to disturb their Sabbath day and the remainder of their feast of Passover. So the Roman soldiers came with a heavy mallet in their hands. They cracked the legs of the first thief. Then they snapped the legs of the second thief. But Jesus' legs they didn't break because he had already died. And no longer able to lift up their bodies, to draw in air into their lungs, they began a grotesque dance, a a losing battle with suffocation. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul says something quite remarkable. That time, uh, he says it about the patriarch Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel. What made Abraham so great? Well, Paul answers it in Romans 4, chapter 4, verse 5. Abraham trusted in God, in the God who justifies the ungodly. The God who justifies the ungodly, the wicked. And who are these ungodly, wicked people? (laughs) They are Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Rebecca and Peter and Paul and Mary and Martha and you and me and him who asked the son to remember him on that day. You know, the Apostle Paul couldn't have known that the great American gospel was that God is going to help those who help themselves. <laughs> and he could not have demolished that so-called gospel more succinctly than he did in these words. While we were still helpless, Christ died for us, for the ungodly. And friends, if you understand that, then you really understand the love of God. For God shows his love for us and that while we were still, still what? Still sinners. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Charles Spurgeon concludes that remarkable sermon in this way. Why should any man or woman despair with such a passage as this in the Bible? Jesus is a physician who can cure hopeless cases. Never should any man or woman despair. For Jesus is the same now as he was, and Spurgeon says, 1,800 years ago, and we would say 2,000 years ago. He's the same. He's still the same now. What, though your sins are more than number than the hairs on your head? What, though your evil habits have grown within your growth and, and have strengthened with your strength? What, that you have hereto hated good and loved evil all the days of your life? Well, these are sad things indeed, but there is hope even for you. Christ can heal you. Christ can raise you from your low estate. Heaven is not shut up against you. Christ is able to admit you to it if you will humbly 
humbly commit your soul unto him, into his hands. Are your sins forgiven? Are they forgiven? If not, then I set before you this Good Friday a full and free salvation. A salvation that is entirely of grace. I invite you to follow the steps of the penitent thief and come to Jesus Christ and live. I tell you, I tell you that Jesus is full of pity uh, and of tender mercy. I tell you that he, he can do everything that your soul requires. Though your sins be as scarlet, he can make them as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Would you, not, would you not be saved? Why should you not be saved as well as any other person? Come unto Christ. Come unto the King who has a kingdom and space for you. Amen.